everyone, to the third episode of Wavelength, the Brave Wave podcast. I'm your host, Brett Elston, and joined once again uh, via Skype by Mohamed Tahir. Hi, Brett. So last episode, we had an interview with uh, Keiji Yamagishi, who talked at length about, you know, not just Ninja Gaiden, but also uh, Retroactive, and it was a really cool interview, so if this is somehow your first episode listening, I encourage you to go backwards, but this time... Uh, we'll get to in a second, but you have another long interview that you uh, conducted while you were in Japan. Yeah, and it has nothing to, well, almost nothing to do with video game music. Uh-huh. Uh, it's an interview with the 84 team, local, localization team. Um, they uh, localized a lot of games uh, recently, Xenoblade Chronicles X. They did a few Tales of games. Uh-huh. Uh, they did Fire Emblem Awakening, Monster Hunter. And what I like about 84 is that... Um, I think localization is one of those things that you don't really think that much about if you're just a regular gamer. And uh, if you like, if you're a gamer and you're playing, let's say, an RPG, and 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 the localization is not good, like your mind won't be really thinking about a localization team. You just think right. badly about like the development team itself. So, localization is really important, even for the brand itself. For um, uh, the development of the game, even though sometimes uh, it feels like it's uh, detached from uh, game development. But uh, as I talked with uh, uh, the guys at H4, they told me that uh, for most of the games, if not all of them, like localization is really integral to the Japanese uh, team. And, and sometimes they work with the uh, directors of the games themselves uh, on all the different terminologies and names and all of that. So, uh, and also, 84, you know, they have a really popular podcast, 84 Play, and they do a lot of community stuff. Like, they go to a lot of events in the U.S. and Japan, Bit Summit, all of that. So, I thought it would be interesting to interview a localization team that does much more than the localization. And they also have, um, like, they, they, they help, help co-produce or uh, release uh, a, a remix album for Sword and Sorcery, which uh, really influenced me a lot when making the first uh, Brave Wave album, World 1-2. So it's it's a lot of fun. It's uh, it's all related. There's uh, touch points in there that are relevant to, I think, people who listen to Brave Wave podcast. Yep. Um, but yeah, localization, like it, it's it's important to distinguish, and this may come up in the interview itself, but like the difference between localization and, and simple translation. Um, working at Capcom, like Phoenix Wright was always one of these series that benefits greatly from having a great localization. There's almost always this like six month or more gap between these releases when they when they do come to the U.S. and it's like that act of moving it from one language to the other is much bigger. Like you were saying, it's so important and just core to the. If your game cares about its story at all, you can't just translate it and move on. You need to spend hundreds of hours, thousands of hours moving this thing over and making sure where this great joke exists and an equivalent one works. And the difference between translating Lizardon is what's Lizardon. But, oh, Charizard, okay. That's a word that I actually can kind of understand. It's got Char, it's got Lizard, got it, great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the monster names, too, for Monster Hunter, it's like, you know, I forget the Rathalos and Rathian, what they're called in, in mm. Japanese, but, you know, Pokemon names, monster names, like, you know, there's hits and misses all, all around, but it's like, that's that's the difference that makes something feel more native to you. Like, I'm playing right now Paper Jam, uh, the Mario and Luigi series, and those have always benefited from a great localization that keeps a lot of, like, 
just snappy conversation and 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 fun banter between these characters that if it was just mm-hmm. directly translated it might feel more direct or robotic because it's like well we're just writing down exactly what they said so it is a thing yeah. if, you're, if you're not familiar with it it's the there's an art to localizing for sure definitely yeah and uh especially if you're uh, like if you're a localization team and you're working on a on a sequel just like you said the uh, phoenix Wright or the tales games sometimes they're related like even if they're not related like even if it's not a direct sequel if like if they exist in the same world or the same series you can expect monsters and items and all of that to like they need to be consistent uh and, and fans will probably notice if something is off so uh but it, it's a really uh much bigger thing than simply just uh translating uh, uh like a, a, an excel sheet just because you have to keep a lot of things in mind uh, and and if it's a if it's a sequel it's just hell to me which makes me understand why uh big uh, rpgs that have sequels like the uh trails game i forgot the name of the game it's a popular rpg on the vita or psp and, yeah, and trails it of took, the sky yeah it, it took years to come and i and uh, i think Kotaku wrote an article about it, just detailing how uh, massive the game was. Um, so, yeah, localization is certainly something that, uh, when done right, you will probably not notice it. Uh, if you're not really into, um, like, I don't know, English, if you're not into uh, 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 stories and all that, you might not notice it that much. But if it's bad, you'll notice it right away, and it might just a huge turn off. Um, right now, I'm playing uh, the new Digimon story, uh, uh, as yeah. well as Tactics Ogre on on the Vita. It's a PSP game, and uh, Xenoblade X Chronicles. So all of them are JRPGs. All of them are meaty in a way, and uh, it's it's uh, like when playing Tactics Ogre, I can see that um, the clo- the localization team really spent a lot of effort on not just uh, like coming up with appropriate names for the characters and events and all of that and the cities uh, because it's, it's it's a political game and and it's it's not silly as you know, Japanese RPGs usually are uh, and and also just uh, making sense of uh, everything like uh, that I don't know what it's called Shakespearean English something like that it's, it's a very old-fashioned English it's, it's not a yeah uh, like Every day is English. Uh, I've always seen Alexander o. Smith, the, the his localization team. They always do that with Matsuno's games. Uh, I think they also did the Final Fantasy Tactics, uh, the BSB ports because it had a new trans, uh, new localization, uh, background story, a lot of other stuff. So um, um, for for I mean, it matters for all kind of games, but for something as uh, deep and serious as Tactics Ogre, it, it made. Uh, a lot of difference to me, and even with Digimon, uh, the, the localization is not that good. And and fr- from things like uh, uh, it's and it is like like being wrong all the time, and oh, sometimes yeah. yeah, sometimes like missing just periods, and uh, sometimes I can see that the jokes the jokes between the uh, characters are not really translated that well. So ever, ever, like even with that silly kind of game it, it, it can be a huge turn off uh, so I think it, it's cool to see what uh, 8.4 are, are doing how they do it how they 
convinced uh, the developers or, or the publishers about the importance of uh, localization and all of that. But before we uh, uh, go to the interview, um, we have two or three announcements. The first one is uh, Retroactive Part 2 by K.G. Amagishi is available on the store right now. Uh, you can buy it, uh, eight bucks, seven tracks. Uh, it has a but one track he collaborated with Ryoichi Nita, the Ninja Gaiden 2 composer, and uh, the last track is a remix by Saori Kobayashi, uh, the composer of Panzer Dragoon. And uh, a lot of people asked us whether we're planning to do uh, a vinyl of, of Retroactive, and that's something we're uh, looking at right now. Uh, the problem with, with making vinyl of original albums is that they probably won't sell uh, as as much as original soundtracks like this, like our Street Fighter 2 album. So we have to be careful about the number of copies we, we make just because if we made 500, let's say, and we only sold 100, then we'll have to store 400 copies in the warehouse, which yeah. is yeah. a lot of money month by month. So uh, that's just something we're uh, trying to see if we can do. And uh, another thing we recently announced uh, is, uh, I'm not sure if we talked about this uh, in the last episode, once the retroactive project wraps up, KG is making a, a few new tracks right now for the CD. Uh, so the CD will be retroactive part one, part two, and then maybe two or three new tracks. And once those are done, uh, we are in the process of demaking them all into authentic Famicom tracks. Uh, and that means those tracks will actually run on a real Famicom. So in addition to selling those authentic D-makes on, on our store, we will also put them on a real Famicom card with uh, uh, art or Famicom box art by uh, Masato Kato, the uh, Ninja Garden yeah. illustrator. Yeah, we mentioned, uh, yeah, also in the last episode, you gave a pretty good status update for where those are, which I'm very excited for, to be honest. Yes, it's amazing. And the funny thing is, uh, uh, Polygon interviewed KG last year, and uh, they, they talked a little bit about... Uh, uh, they they interviewed KG uh, and uh, Masato Kato and the director of Ninja Garden. And, and when I when I looked at Masato Kato, I like I just did a quick Google search to see like okay he's an amazing artist. What is he working on? And then I was surprised to see that he directed uh, and wrote the story for uh, and did early sketches for uh, Chrono Trigger, Chrono Cross. Yeah. Um, he handed a lot of. Uh, Square Soft and Square Enix games, and uh, it's such a massive departure from what he what he's uh, known for back in the day, or maybe what what he's used to. So I immediately went to KG and asked him, "Can we ask uh, Kato to make us a new illustration for the Famicom box?" And he asked him. Kato agreed. So that's really amazing. So. Uh, you can find the Verge interview with KG uh, on the website, uh, bravewave.net slash wavelength slash three, the episode number. And uh, in the Verge interview, we shared uh, like a sketch, uh, a work in progress sketch by uh, Katu of the, for the album uh, art, for the box art, the actual Famicom box art. So it's really exciting and uh, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to share more of his art and more reviews of that Famicom album. 
So that's announcement number one. And announcement number two, well, it's not really an announcement, but more of an update, which is we uh, heard back from the manufacturer regarding the Street Fighter 2 vinyl. And uh, um, we received the test pressing. We sent it to our engineer, Marco Guardia, and uh, he approved it. There's nothing wrong with it. So we're just going ahead with the production. And um, the factory told us that they expect to finish everything by mid-March, which means we hope to send the vinyl uh, to people who bought it maybe late March, early April, something like that. But it's good to know that it, it's gold, as they say. We, we, we just Everything is approved, everything is finished, and we're just waiting for them to uh, finish pressing it. Yeah, and also uh, coming up pretty soon. Uh, it's you know hard to act on if you're. This is the first time you're hearing about it. But uh, just in case, if you happen to be going to Magfest and didn't know, uh, Magfest is uh, that amazing annual celebration of uh, game music, game music culture, and all that. Uh, but uh, Keiji Inafune and composer Manami Matsumai uh, will be at Magfest um, along with Inti Creates. So. She'll be speaking. Uh, I don't know. I don't know precisely the content of the speech, but she'll be there uh, talking about, I guess, you know, her life's work and music and working on these mm-hmm. games and Mighty Number no. Nine and all this stuff. Um, so if you were already attending Magfest, that's February eighteenth to the twenty first. Um, you can find out more on Magfest.org also. But uh, it's it's also cool for uh, Manami Matsumai to actually make it out there too, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, and uh, I mean, she loves to sign stuff. So if you have Mega Man One, I don't think I don't think Capcom did any promo stuff for Mega Man Ten. I do remember they did for Mega Man Nine. But if you have anything Mega Man One, Mega Man Ten, then just let her sign it. Oh yeah, this is this might be your only chance if you're not if you don't go to Japan a lot. Yeah, I was lucky to to meet her at I guess PAX like. A year or two ago for uh, shovel knights, mm. shovel knight stuff. But uh, yes, yeah, her appearances in the U.S. are pretty rare. So if you're in Magfest and you're listening to the show, it is a uh, it can't be more in your interest to go over there and, and check that out. Um, but again, you can find out more on Magfest.org. Okay, without further ado, we'll move into uh, your interview with the eight four guys recorded while you were back in Japan a few weeks ago. But uh, we'll hop into that and we'll come back for a quick tag at the end. But uh, enjoy.
Welcome back. This is Mohammed, uh, and I'm talking to you from Japan, Shibuya, at the 8-4 offices. And uh, with me are John Ricciardi. Hi. Uh, Mark McDonald. That's uh, 8-4 Towers. I was going to say. <laughs> our, our volcano lair in Shibuya. But uh, hello. Thanks, uh, thanks for having us. You're welcome. And Justin Epperson. Hi. Hello. And JJ, I'm JJ. As he is known. Yeah, I was yes. gonna say JJ. <laughs> <laughs> and but me. I mean, the building didn't look exactly like a tower, but I. You mean well, the giant you... gold uh, wall outside with guards and everything didn't make you think of? <laughs> you uh, sli- you slipped past towers. the dragon, and that was impressive. Yeah, yeah a lot maybe. of people die at that part. You've done well to make it this far. <laughs> what defines a tower anyway? We have like five floors. That's a that's tower towering, tower esque. We tower yeah. over other. Localization companies. Let's just put it that way. So, you guys do localization for a lot of games, and localization is basically uh, translating games and adapting them to the Western audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, how did the idea of making a localization company come to be? Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, to to kind of take a really long story and sort of sort of. summarize it encapsulate it basically when i was uh this is john speaking by the way uh i started eight four with hiroko 10 years ago mm-hmm. and uh, hiroko being our other partner who's uh, out right now on maternity leave mm-hmm. um and uh we worked uh so all of us have worked in the game industry for like a long time mark myself and hiroko mm-hmm. uh for many years and uh hiroko and i met at a previous company uh, that did other stuff, not localization. Mm-hmm. And but I really didn't like doing that other stuff, and I wanted to find something interesting to do. That was like you know, and it's like, well, what's going on in Japan that could use some help? All well, localizations are mostly not very good. This was ten years ago, mind <laughs> yeah. me, yeah. or more than ten years ago, actually. Um, it's not really changed, but yeah, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> it's gotten a little better. Yeah, and there's still a lot of bad. No, there's yes localizations out there in general, both mm-hmm. in English and into Japanese. But, That's true. Well, sorry. especially still into Japanese, yeah. But um, but yeah. So it was like, okay, well, there's an area that you know I have writing experience. Uh, I really love Japanese games. Maybe that we could do something, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. that started doing that, um, but didn't really enjoy working at this um, company, and so I ended up leaving. Uh, and Hiroko had left as well. But we enjoyed working with each other, so we're like, well, why don't we go into business ourselves and mm-hmm. do localization? And that's kind of how it started. Um, and then Mark, you know, joined us a few years later, and, and we've kind of been doing it ever since. And you guys used to write for EGM before that, right? Yep. EGM and Mark wrote for OPM, but, yeah. uh, the official PlayStation magazine. Electronic Gaming Monthly, which you might not know these days, used to be <laughs> the biggest <laughs> magazine out there, the best magazine out there, at least uh, the fl- anyway. The flagship, as we flagship, called it in the building, which the other right. magazines didn't like. <laughs> no, they didn't like that at all. Um, but yeah, I, I think technically it still exists. I'm not sure they publish anymore or not. but um, I see it in the airport now and then. But anyway, really? yeah, so yeah. an 8-4 has been around. That's been 10 years almost exactly um, since since John Hiroko founded 8-4. And now we actually do a lot of other stuff too, not just mm-hmm. localization. Um, localization is kind of the the uh, foundation, the bread and butter. But um, we do a lot of you know consulting. We ran the Mighty Number no. 9 Kickstarter. A lot of mm-hmm. people know us um, mm-hmm. uh, for that. Um we uh, did. We do, you know, PR and marketing assistance and stuff. We helped um, the Inti Creates guys get the word out about 
Gunvolt. Mm-hmm. Um, w- recently, we did like a speed run contest with them, which was really cool and mm-hmm. really fun. We've done focus groups for companies. Um, we do the speakers, Japanese speakers for GDC. We've done, you know, speaking of game music stuff, we've um, been kind of the middleman and agent for um, different uh, artists in Japan and working with Western developers and publishers and stuff like that. So basically, like, all kinds of other stuff too that we can't talk about but Mm -hmm. um you know anything having to do with japan and the west or english and japanese in the game industry uh if it's cool then then we'll we'll you might be able to hire us yeah like the (laughs) a-team if you can find us uh in the you towers. might be able to hire <laughs> who would be A4. Mr. T <laughs> <laughs> um, Hiroko of course yeah ah, there you go yeah. <laughs> yeah. so you guys did a lot of really uh, big uh, heavy games and heavy when it comes to the amount of text uh, that's a number of the Tales games yeah, heavy Tales is a good word artists. for it because <laughs> <laughs> they're pretty they can be pretty rough when they get pretty big there but yeah big RPGs something we've done a lot of uh, and all of them uh, are really big clients like triple a companies so when you started back then uh how did you convince the japanese publisher that localization is important because uh i mean it's it's tough to make someone who does, doesn't understand another language the importance of oh yeah the 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 mm-hmm. the, the audience on the other on the other side mm-hmm. and uh right uh it must have been a tough sell at, at first that was a lesson we learned early and often is, yeah, it's not, you would think it would be obvious to, you know, I, I don't know why I thought this foolishly. I, I think early on, though, I just kind of assumed everybody would understand why localization is important. But, you know, when you get out of English, especially a lot of, I'm sure it's not just a Japan thing, but just when you get into other languages, a lot of times they're not thinking about anything but their own language. And they don't really think about other languages or even like, what it's what it means to communicate differently you know because mm-hmm. if it's not your job or it's not something you think about on a regular basis why would you consider that stuff you know mm-hmm. that's right um but we were fortunate just to get started off like on a, on a good note because we again because we had come from the media mm-hmm. uh we'd known a lot we already had a lot of context in mm-hmm. game in fact the first games that i'd worked on before even starting 8.4 came via people who i had just worked with in the media who then at the time worked for publishers you know worked at namco or mm-hmm. worked at you know at the art first jobs on nintendo actually mark wasn't even working with us but mark you know basically had his friends at nintendo and basically told them yeah you guys can trust these guys they're mm-hmm. good and that's how we ended up starting working Nintendo. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it all went back to like our basic past relationships. It came a lot, a lot too from the, uh, so sometimes we'll get projects a lot of times working with the Japanese side directly, but also mm-hmm. a lot of times you'll work with, uh, with the uh, Western publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of those people actually do and did understand how important localization was because they grew up same as us with these crappy localized games and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they saw kind of how good they could be um you know starting i think with some of the square games and uh, nintendo games like Mm -hmm. some people were doing good loc work even back in the day but um you know there were people who appreciated that and were willing to fight for it internally in those companies and then um you know there are some standout people in Japan too who do understand that, but you're right; it is it can be difficult mm-hmm. to make somebody care about mm-hmm. a language other than one that they understand. Mm-hmm. But you will find people that that just care about 
quality overall. And um, yeah, I think the way A4 has done it is both a lot of it has been through the Western arms of publishers, and then also a lot of times, you know, it, it snowballs. You mm-hmm. get a, you get a good right. reputation. Um, you have a few good projects. You handle something really big that does very well mm-hmm. uh, in a market, and then other people tell you uh, tell their friends about mm-hmm. you as well. Mm-hmm. The same way that, that that I did and we did at the start mm-hmm. to sort of sure kick, kick it off. Right. And it's it's also fun. I would say it's rewarding. It's very rewarding to be able to educate like you know Japanese developers on this stuff. That because again, it's not like necessarily their fault that they didn't mm-hmm. know these things were important. But like yes. it's fun. Like a lot of times when it works out, when you work with a developer for the first time and like kind of explain to them all the reasons why it's important to do these things and why you want your game to be localized well and you know why this thing that works in Japan might not work overseas. Mm-hmm. And that's really rewarding when it works out because then when they come back the next time around, a lot of the legwork mm-hmm. has already been done. You know, they already mm-hmm. understand it, mm-hmm. hopefully, when it, you know, when it works right. out. Mm-hmm. So that's it's, really It's nice. kind of interesting because... We're kind of having to teach these lessons over again now that we're doing a lot of mobile stuff. Like I think a lot of true. a lot of mobile companies probably don't think about localization. They're just like, yeah, just, whatever. Just it's a mobile game. Nobody cares. Right. Mm-hmm. But, Let's just get it out in China. Oh, you have to. Oh, right. I guess you have to put it in Chinese. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. Um, but they're you know they're quickly discovering that a better localization greatly enhances their ability to connect to users mm-hmm. and. Uh, we're happy to teach them that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a lot of the games that you guys worked on, the Tales games uh, and, and Nier, uh, are games that are made by me- people that might be inf- influenced by some Western stuff, but, you know, they're, they're Japanese people and they're, uh, they're creating something to, to that audience. So are you limited to the things that you can change in the localization process when it comes to, I don't know, quests, uh, even uh, certain uh, items, all of those uh, Subtle, small things that might not make that much of a, that much of a difference because you know they're not uh, story elements, but mm. uh, mm-hmm. you you notice them. Maybe maybe it's Japanese food. Maybe sometimes it mm-hmm. makes sense to localize that, uh, just translate that as it is, and sometimes mm-hmm. you want to change them. So how do you approach that for each game? Well, I think it's different. One thing to keep in mind is it's different for every project. Like That's some true. some some projects. I mean, even just what we would want to do changes based on the on the project, right? If you have a game that's supposed to be set in Japan or a very Japanese-like setting or, you know, we had... There are different challenges, you know. There was a town in, in a certain Monster Hunter game that was very patterned after old Japan, but it was not Japanese. So mm-hmm. you want to keep that sense and that flavor without alienating people who are not as familiar with all the different older parts of Japanese culture but mm-hmm. um, so it's different per project that it's also different sometimes you're limited by the publisher too sometimes mm-hmm. it's not our decision sometimes yeah. the publisher is like well this game is uh, you know is going to be set in uh, Springfield America like uh, mm-hmm. or, or or whatever mm-hmm. um, right. so sometimes we'll suggest something that hey we should throw out this whole naming convention because it doesn't it makes sense in Japanese, but instead for America we should do it this way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll be like, "Yep, that's cool. That totally makes sense." And sometimes they'll be like, "No, the developers really want to keep it that way." And so we're like, "Okay, well, that's you know." Sometimes we'll we'll push back and forth on it a little bit. Sometimes mm-hmm. we'll come to a compromise. Sometimes we'll get our way. Sometimes we'll get their way. But mm-hmm. but yeah, there's no set rule 
for even within one project you know you it's all context it's all case by case basis and um you know mm-hmm. that's something that we sweat a lot about and think mm-hmm. a lot about and i think that's something that we offer over a lot of places is that it's all custom done it's all hand localized if you mm-hmm. want to call hand it crafted. that yes. yeah, yeah. It, there's no one size fits all there's no machine google translates okay this is how mm-hmm. it always is we're always going to just keep the japanese names for these things or we're always going to just completely throw them away and localize them like we really spend a long time you know some of the names of the just to go back to monster hunter some of the names mm-hmm. of the monsters of monster hunter is a really good mm-hmm. example we spend hours and hours days weeks even yeah. working alongside with capcom and the developers on coming up with names that um even though they're not Japanese in the first place to begin with, um, they convey a feeling, a certain feeling, mm-hmm. and they use certain certain root words that might have come from different languages mm-hmm. um, that you have to research and explore. And okay, well, what would get that same kind of feeling apart? You know, sometimes it's just like nonsense words, it's just mm-hmm. sounds, the syllables. You yes. know, Bobo. Like, what does that sound like to you? Like, kind of sounds silly, right? Yeah, it sounds yeah. like, like a clown, yes. maybe like a monkey, mm-hmm. right? But that mm-hmm. that that sound has a feeling to it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we do sweating the kind of topics that you're talking about having to do with naming like it just it takes a lot of time mm-hmm. and um and then hopefully I mean we think that that's something that we offer you know that we do pretty well definitely and I think the point that Mark mentioned too about like taking weeks going back and forth that's actually something that I I when we get to talk in interviews like this, I like to kind of bring up because it's not like, you know, we don't just do this stuff in a vacuum. Like we talk like in Monster Hunter's case, we're actually talking directly with the game director. It's mm-hmm. not even like just the localization guy or whatever. We basically yeah. go back and forth with the re- directors of the series mm-hmm. and like, yeah, what do you want? What do you want to do with these names? What do you think about this? Yeah, and it's like, what is the reason why you chose this thing? It's not like, oh, I think it was like, this yeah. is why we chose yeah. this. And here's the picture that we were looking at. Yeah, when so, we decided exactly. That. I mean, it's very specific. And sometimes it's like a complicated file with all that information. And like, you know, sometimes we have what we think are like the perfect ideas and and they'll be like, no, that's we don't want to do that because, you know, there's this one thing. And then we're like, okay, back to the drawing board and we'll go back and forth numerous times until we get it. But the thing that I want to get across, though, is a lot of this stuff. We're not just changing willy nilly. It's Mm -hmm. often Mm -hmm. with the blessing uh, and and often the feedback and the input of the original creators. And um, you guys worked on Xenosaga 3, right? Mm-hmm. But you didn't work on the first two games? I did. I worked on Xenosaga 1 and 2. I was okay. actually the main editor on those, but that was previous to 8.4. That was before yes, 8.4 yes. had started. So, but yeah, we as 8.4 did Xenosaga 3. Uh, because when I went to your website and I saw like the, the, the uh, game cover for Xenosaga 3 and I didn't see 1 and 2, I just thought this must have been a lot of work to localize a sequel uh, in in a series when you have tons of items and characters and just things you have to keep in sync with the rest of the Sure, yeah. And you have Tales, Xenoblade, all of these games where you you have to just be constantly aware of the uh, world of the game itself. So, Sure, the history and the and the the yeah. existing glossaries and so on and so forth. Yeah, and does that ever get easier? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's definitely a big challenge in localization, right? I mean, like you know, we often well, not often, but I would say there's been a several times where we like came into a, the middle of a series that had been done before. You know, I mean, even Fire Emblem, we worked on two Fire Emblem games, but obviously there were several that had already been localized before, mm-hmm. and they yeah. were done really well. 
But I mean, yeah, that requires you to immediately like research the hell out of them and understand what they did and sometimes why. Right. Mm. Uh, you know, try to carry over as much as you can. But sometimes, you know, changes are necessary because like yes. they didn't know something at the time they did the games when you did now or, mm. or vice mm. versa. Mm. So, yeah, it's just a lot of uh, sweating the details, I think, in research. But but that's fun. I mean, I it's time consuming. So you right. need to, sometimes you need a lot of time to do it. But I would say that's one of the fun parts of the job. And uh for the companies that have uh, internal localization teams, do you get to work with them? Like, do you do you take some bots and they take some bots, or do you? Again, it's different every project, but yes, yeah, in course. general, um, sometimes it's working, you know, hand in hand with them and not translating all of the game, and they translate part of it. Sometimes it's it's just like working with anybody else and but when you're done the internal team just mm -hmm. d dots the i's and crosses the t's basically just quits mm -hmm. the final level of polish on it or does the mm -hmm. text debugging themselves mm -hmm. like basically the game is translated but once it's thrown into the game maybe you know one line runs a little bit over or is it the, some words have to be cut or like something appears outside of a outside of a ui window and it needs to be shortened or something that's kind of you know what we call text debugging and mm -hmm. so sometimes they'll do that internally it, or sometimes they barely even touch it at all and we're just there to act right. like a external internal team almost yeah. um, so it's different per every product a lot of times in the early years of 84 we would like do a lot of big rpgs where the um we did most of the game text or, or sometimes all of the game text but the actual voice recording would be handled by someone else like mm -hmm. internal like for example with namco and those tales games we've never mm -hmm. actually run the voice recording we mm -hmm. often did the scripts for everyone and like the voice scripts and left the notes and everything but someone else handled the actual you know going to the studio and doing the voices but Direct, then directing basically exactly mm -hmm. but then on the other hand there are games where we have done the voice the voice recording ourselves like near and and, uh, and and xenoblade and you mm -hmm. know stuff like that so it, it that's like one another way where you know the sometimes the internal teams end up um taking part in the project um but you know some games it's just like some games are so huge that you know they have to be split up between multiple multiple groups and mm -hmm. companies and, right. and not even necessarily they could be other external companies potentially but yes. we tend to luckily we tend to often work be like the sole you know group mm. working on a game which we kind of like that way because we can manage the quality better and what makes a company that have an internal localization team want to hire uh an external team is it because of the question. pressure uh, like are there other reasons because it has we're awesome and they just can't handle the pressure that's, right. <laughs> that's, um, that's what it is yeah <laughs> no a yeah. lot of times it's uh you know they get too busy or like three projects all come in at once they can't mm -hmm. handle them or you know they want to devote those resources to something else mm. maybe we're fam more familiar with the series we've mm -hmm. done um a few other in the past like a tales or a or a monster hunter game and they mm -hmm. just know okay you know, not a lot of places have all of the resources all at the right time to be mm -hmm. able to handle all of their internal projects. And so that that's generally the reason why. And you guys didn't work on the first Xenoblade, right? We did not. No. No. Oh. Yeah. That was Nintendo, I think, Europe yes. uh, handled that. NOE. Yeah. So it was a big challenge for you guys to handle a sequel as massive as Xenoblade Chronicles X. Because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm 60 hours into the game. Yeah. 
and I have yet to see two complete <laughs> worlds. I, I, I mean, I, I just go in, monsters there slay me if, yeah. even with my skills. <laughs> and I just keep thinking, this game is so, so big. I yeah. mean, when people told me that it's it's like quadruple the size of Fallout or Skyrim, I, I, I kind of, my mind couldn't really conclude that. <laughs> kind of like yeah. when someone tells you that, you know, the universe has billions of galaxies, you'll just say, well, okay, that right. kind of makes sense. But when, when I'm playing the game and I see the amount of uh, places, and, and not just not just the wars them, themselves, but even the, t- I mean, the main town itself, I only maybe navigated 10% of that, and mm-hmm. it just intimidates me every time I go in <laughs> and I just look at the number, it's so low, and, and, and the, the areas themselves are so big. So, how did it feel? Well, I mean, one fortunate thing for us was that yeah. this game is really not tied to the previous game very much. Mm. I mean, there's a small, you know, sort of cross-section of, like, you know, items and, and, and random stuff that carries Lynn, over Lynn from has the first game. <laughs> she does, but, I mean, fortunately, we don't have to do anything. It's not like we have to localize the <laughs> pin in her hair. So um, there's lots of... There's very little... There's some, but very little that crossed over with the first game, which... Thank God for that, because this game was already a monster in its own right. Just yes. like I, I think it's okay to say it's the largest game we've ever worked on by a lot. Yeah. Like, si- like uh, in by terms far. of like volume of text to translate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny we, because when we did Fire, Fire Emblem Awakening, we we're like, "This is the biggest project. How do games get this big?" Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, then the next one, it's like oh my <laughs> almost <yeah>. double. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not quite, but like it was very, it was a lot uh, bigger. And um, it's a, uh, you know. It's, it, we did it in a pretty short amount of time too. I would say not that we did it fast, but I mean it, it's not. It was no joke to like do a game like that in like nine mm. or it ten was, months, it whatever. Was not it is. a that lack is, schedule yeah. at all. Yeah, was, for the amount of relatively the size of the game, like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was very much like a, we really want to get this game out, you know, to people this year. How can we make that happen? Mm. Um, and you know, fortunately, we were able to pull it off. But yeah, that was that was a monster. It would have been probably a lot harder if there were like a lot of tiebacks to the previous game. But Things we had to keep track of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, um, a lot of guys uh, know you from the Eight Four Play podcast, uh, and which I think is a fantastic podcast. Yeah, well, I think thank you. very thank you. few podcasts that I listen to religiously. Oh, awesome! Oh, awesome. Nice. And so, in addition to the podcast, you also dabbled in music, and you uh, released a few years back. I think it's Mark is a solo album. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. say. <laughs> you you helped uh, Jim Guthrie with that with the Sorcery EP. Yep. Where it had Bayon, Mishiru Yamane, uh, Akira Yamaoka. And that album actually was a really big inspiration for me when I was working on Brave Wave's first album, just because um, that's awesome. I loved Sorcery a lot, and uh, when that mm. album came out, and I'm a big Mishiru, Mishiru Yamane fanboy, mm. so when I saw <laughs> that, great. yeah, when I saw that she made a Sorcery remix, and and that you guys worked on it, it was a really inspiring thing. Mm. So. Um, don't you think about doing more of that? Like things that maybe don't really... I mean, you already do a lot of things that don't tie into localization, but uh, I especially like what you did with music because you have a lot of great ideas. Even in terms of well, now you're stuff. here. I was going to so say, we, you took up the torch. Right? Right? I thought you were... We handed it off to you guys, and you, you were supposed to take Do you want us to take your business? Uh, no. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Um, but that, that album was super fun to work on, and that's yeah. the, a lot of that was Hiroko, who's who's yeah. not here. She just had a baby, mm. so she's out for that. But the uh, for people who don't know, so yeah, the Sword and Sorcery, the uh, the um, so the mobile game, which eventually did also come to PC. We handled uh, publishing the Japanese version of that. We mm-hmm. localized it and mm-hmm. like kind of guess co-published it with Cappy Games mm. and 
and uh, Super Brothers um, and a bunch of those guys because we were friends with them. That was actually the first game that we published as well, mm. or, or or I should say again, helped publish. Mm. Um, right. And we've since now done that with the with a few more games and are doing it with a few more. Shovel Knight, which also has a yeah. really amazing soundtrack, mm. um, has your girl on it as mm-hmm. well. Um, uh, yeah. That's uh, Sword and Sorcery, the oh. Scythian Steps. The Scythian Steps, that's right. <laughs> you can buy it on Bandcamp uh, yes. still and today. And yeah, so, so um, we, as part of the promotion for that, because music was such a big part of it and Jim Guthrie's soundtrack was, was so amazing and they were already selling that um, mm-hmm. standalone, we thought as part of the, the Japanese launch it would be cool to do a remix with the Japanese artists. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we got a whole bunch of people together um uh, on that i know uh kiriyamaoka was on it as well um it turned out so well too because you never know like we're not i mean we we knew what we wanted to accomplish with it but we're not like music professionals right so it's like if you were to get a track back and it's terrible like what do you do do you like you know how do you give feedback (laughs) on music to a pro musician when you're just like a dude who like listens to video game music but um fortunately it turned out awesome i mean it turned out really well and the game did well here and yeah the whole experience was pretty awesome so um yeah thanks to all those guys and the artists and Hiroko and everybody and and really that whole experience was what led us to you're right we haven't done more in the in the musical realm um because we thought that you had taken that uh, over (laughs) but we've you know since been doing a bunch more on the on the game publishing route and bringing Mm -hmm. you know other games uh over here that's that's one of the other things i should have mentioned of, of what we do is we help facilitate bringing indie games back and forth now that indie games are such a thing um, that's something we're really involved with. Bit Summit, which I know you guys are also mm-hmm. really involved mm-hmm. with, the mm-hmm. annual Japanese uh, indie game festival. Um, that's something that we were a big believer in from early on, and been helping uh, those guys kind of uh, with here and there. So, um, so yeah, that was a big that was a big deal, and um, I'm well, glad I, that inspired you guys. It, it led to a lot of stuff for us too. I mean, uh, I mean, right now when when you see that you know Manami Matsumai is uh, the composer of Mega Man doing this or that, that right now it feels kind of uh, expected or normal. Normal, but back then to see a Western game have a yeah. remix EP with yeah. Japanese composers mm-hmm. was so. And that's big. just like three years ago. I mean, that's not a long time ago right. at all. That's yeah. very recent history. And yeah. you're right. Now it isn't crazy to see something on kickstarter with yeah. you know with somebody's with somebody very famous japanese composers attached to it for whatever reason um i think part of the reason why that is is that the the japanese composers and, and the artists as well maybe because they're all artists and they're free spirits mm-hmm. they were some of the first people to start going independent in yeah. japanese game development yeah. yeah there's still a lot of people who very early on are still in but a lot of them got out there are yeah, yeah there are some people who are still in but and a lot of the people from back in the day who we know went independent before mm. you know people and they weren't even making a big deal out of it and before indie was like a, a, a cool word to attach oh, totally. to itself mm-hmm. which is insane right yeah yeah, yeah very much I think much a lot so. of them too I mean a lot of them went indie and then a lot of them also just sort of fizz, fizzled out because they didn't realize or I should say their companies didn't realize their worth and so exactly. for them it was like well music is not a, a viable you know uh career for me and and so they did other stuff well or they did non-game stuff right they they did commercials and they did you know whatever else because they thought well games you you can't just be an independent composer for video games like Mm. you're not going to make a lot of money that way but yeah that's Uh, been changing now too yeah Uh, i met a few composers in the past few days one of them uh masashi 
Kagiyama, the composer of Gimmick. And uh, I saw you tweet about that, which is so. Did he go on to do anything else? He quit music 20 years ago to what? focus on photography, so he's like oh, a wow. professional photographer now. But I got him to do uh, to, to make a solo album, which now he's slowly wow. like uh, that's like, amazing. He says, I'm rusty, I need to practice, but uh, we're. We're helping him with everything, but so is wow. it chip tunes or is it just whatever he wants kind of music? Whatever he wants, because okay. um, uh, and the funny thing is the reason he decided to join Brave Wave is he said that whenever someone knows that I'm the gimmick composer, they want to do something with gimmick, so they right. they want yeah. to publish the gimmick soundtrack. Of course, but no one really cares about me. No, no, no one cares what kind of music I uh, I want to make right. or what what, what new stuff I want to make. And uh, what what makes me sad is that all these composers don't really uh, just just because back in the day you it, it was just supposed to be a job just a regular yeah job. exactly they're like shine the Japanese word shine which is basically a person in a company like employee employee, employee yes thank you <laughs> English is my third language. <laughs> um, <laughs> they were just like employees, like yeah. like anybody. Like, yes, they were there. They just so happened to be in doing right. music. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, I interviewed uh, Keiji Amagishi, the composer of Ninja Gaiden, for the uh, second episode of the podcast. And when I asked him, "So why did you quit music around the PlayStation Two era?" He said, "Well, um, uh, games just went for a Hollywood-like kind of sound, yeah. and I don't really know how to conduct an orchestra, so I just thought." <laughs> No one needs me. No one mm. likes my music. Oh, and that was so really sad up. because, I mean, uh, he did uh, a lot of really cool games, but uh, notably Ninja Gaiden. And yeah. Guitar Man, the first Dynasty Warriors, uh, Captain Tsubasa, which is a Japanese uh, Guitar game. Man 2. Ca- Captain Tsubasa 2. Yes. Amazing soundtrack. Yes, absolutely. Legendary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, actually, Mohammed, I wanted to ask you something. Mm. Is there, you know, who is your, like, Moby Dick? Who are you out there just, like looking for and trying to you know who would be your biggest get yeah who who would be your dream the elusive album guy who you just have not been able to get well it was supposed to be KG but I got him oh so, no <laughs> oh wow so now you don't there's nobody well, it's all downhill um, from here like the funny thing is I had a list uh, in like the iPhone notes app with the names of the composer that I hope to work with and like I made that two years ago when we first started, and all of them are now part of Brave Wave. So now I, awesome. I, I, I just I don't know what to do. Because <laughs> well, one one guy who I think is probably going to stay at Sega until he dies, but Mitsuyoshi Sung, the composer oh, of Daytona, yeah. yes, Virtual so Fighter, yes, he's amazing. Mm. But I think he's like a total company man. Someone has to lure him out of there. <laughs> and get, love, him, yeah. get him, because like, they totally misuse him now. Yeah. He like makes nothing worth note. Yes. Uh, he's such an awesome guy, too. It, he's a friend of ours, actually. Yeah. And he's like just like the funniest, coolest guy. Like, he did the, he would like do pe- ring, back in the day when people slid ringtones on their like flip phones or whatever, he would like do the game over, yeah, thing into like your phone for you and stuff. Yeah. He's so cool. Dude's awesome. He's an awesome guy. And like, the world needs access to him. <laughs> Someone needs yes. to lure him out of Sega. Yes, you need to bust into their headquarters that's, and, and yank That's what I want you to do. Steal, yeah. <laughs> I am curious, yeah, because I was going to ask too, just like turning the tables around here though, but like what is the uh, what is the most common reaction when you're approaching these uh, Japanese composers? That, about loving their music and all of that. About, well, just in general, yeah. Wanting about wanting to work, to work with them. With them. Mm. What is their, what well, are the reactions you're getting the most? Let me blow your mind. Uh, <laughs> the composer of Mega Man 2 
didn't know that people love the music until <sighs> I met him in 2013. What? Mega Man 2. And uh, uh, like uh, I was doing an interview with him uh, last year. He probably still has a flip phone, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have a smartphone. Yeah, because yeah, he, he has his own company now, yes. separate from music, because we talked with him for the Kickstarter. Mike number nine. Uh, Mike number nine Kickstarter, mm-hmm. I remember, um, to get him uh, involved oh, yeah. with that. Okay. Yeah. Track, I yeah. do remember that. Um, but... Uh, but so, but I mean, in, to speak more like in general, are people is that been the thing? And people are just really like, really, do you you want me to just kind of flattered and excited? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, even KG, who knew that people loved Ninja Gaiden music, when I asked him to make a solo album, like in the interview, he said, like me, why do you want me? Like, like he, he didn't, right? He didn't see his style or or his music as something special, and and I think that's just because. Um, I mean, even though the the Japanese game musicians like they're like in a cult, they they, they all know each other. Mm-hmm. They, they, they like, but but there's something about these Japanese composers that doesn't let them think highly, maybe, of the music that they created back then. And the other thing is, a lot of them they didn't create chiptune music because they like chiptunes, just because that's what they that was, that was the, the hardware. Yeah. Yes, right. so to them that's like. They, they don't really know about the chip to movement all of that so to them that's just inferior music and why would anyone wants to work with me where like my content is basically like those lo-fi sounds mm. right and what uh, was that movie about that guy who was like a folk singer and then like he was like huge in South Africa and oh, he didn't find sugar out man. Oh, sugar, sugar man, sugar man. It's, yes it's kind of like a whole bunch of sugar men <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> living in Japan yeah uh, w- when I was watching that movie I just kept thinking like, this is KG and Melami and everyone I know yeah <laughs> and it's just insane and uh, of course you have people like uh, Yoko Shimamura who did Street Fighter Kingdom Hearts or Final Fantasy 15 yeah, now she uh, is like legendary her yeah. music is amazing yeah and, and she's one of the uh, few composers Japanese composers that have an active and massive fan base that they, they, they're they constantly aware that uh, their music is really loved by everyone mm-hmm. but especially the, the old uh, Famicom composers just because they kind of quit um, they don't really know that they have a lot of people that really want to hear their music hmm. and I think uh, I mean even um, with KG when we released his first album uh, Retroactive Part 1 he said that he was surprised that n- no one from Japan wrote about it, but the West was just exploding. Everyone was writing about it, praising it, praising mm. his style, Ninja Gaiden, and, and that surprised him a lot. And I think it's it's cool that finally they they get to see the fruit of their I don't know yeah totally. almost three decades. So labor. what's so what's the big so what's the future then for Braveway? Like you guys did the Street Fighter Two mm. album. Is it more of that, like uh, classic games or arcade games or things that? Yeah, so we're working on a remastering few... Remastering and that kind of thing? Yeah, we, we're working on a few soundtracks, and we're also making solo albums, because that's what I personally love the most, making mm. music with these composers. Um, and so the three things are these remastered soundtracks, solo albums, like totally new music, and uh, working on games. And uh, I remember I, uh, one of my friends told me, I mean... It's easy to convince someone to listen to the Ninja Gaiden soundtrack, but to tell them that the Ninja Gaiden composer made a new album right. and it's chip exactly. tune, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a hard sell, and that's yep. Yep. That, that's been tough. But uh, we're slowly just making people aware, not just of like Mega Man, but who composed Mega Man, not just Ninja Gaiden, but who composed them. Because I know right. that, uh, I mean, deep down inside, I know that there are a lot of people like me who really love 
those people but just don't really think uh, they're, they're not conscious about it but they yeah want to hear more more of them mm-hmm. right well back in the day they didn't often didn't even use their real names so it was hard right. to right. even know who they were yeah i would think almost like i don't know if you guys have done this at all but like a mix of the two would almost be a good idea because it's like here's the gimmick soundtrack with you know three bonus tracks by the guy yeah. who did uh, it and so you get them you know what they know that they want already mm-hmm. and then they get something kind of because i would be curious to hear yes what the what the guy would but i don't know you know enough to get an own album but yes. i would be yes. doubly interested to get if it was included remastered yeah, yeah. like um, you do the super uh, the street fighter 2 soundtrack but then there's also like five tracks of bonus you disc. know imaginary street fighter characters yes. that never pick other countries that weren't yeah. actually in <laughs> exactly. the game or whatever yeah, these are actually cool ideas i think i'm just gonna Canada. cut this section yeah, just cut the section out and <laughs> just take, take these yeah <laughs> and you won't be critical for any of them <laughs> and um i think that's it thank you guys for uh, having this uh, short interview about your work cool yeah, yeah. Of course. and I think this is the part where everyone just tells me what their Twitter is and <laughs> uh, how to listen to your podcast and all of that oh well uh, you can find our podcast at 8-4.jp uh, we also are on giantbomb.com um, that's our like second home so if you go there you'll be able to download the uh, podcast we're also on iTunes Yep. Most any sort of like RSS feeds. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at SBRSK. At Mark MACD, M A R K M E C D. And I'm John TV. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Mohammed. And back to Brett.
right, we are back. And the song that brought us uh, in from that was uh, from Xenosaga 3, Promised Pain, which Xenosaga 3 is actually one of the soundtracks I don't know that much about. So I'm excited to hear more of that. Yeah, me too. I mean, I haven't played the games, but uh, the soundtracks to those three games are really uh, amazing. Uh, well, obviously my favorite thing. I was going to say it's one of my favorite things about the series, but I really didn't play it. I only played the Xenoblade. Yeah. Uh, Chronicles X, uh, but yeah, Zinsaga has a lot of really amazing tracks. I think it's uh, I think the music is made by a really popular anime uh, musician, something Kajura. Let me um, yeah, uh, Yuki Kajura. Uh, uh, yes, Kajura. I think so. Yes, yes, and it's amazing. I, th- I think Promised Pain is the final boss theme, something like that. But it's really uh, nice. Yeah, it's one of those series and, that like I was I was following it as it came out, and it they I think they all wrapped up like right as I was getting into like paid games writing work. So like mm. had I joined into the fray like a year earlier, I probably would have ended up having to review the third one as the RPG guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I think I just missed it. And uh, one thing about the games is that uh, I remember, like when when people were trying to convince me to play it in the early PlayStation Three days, is that they are really long games yeah. when it comes to cinematics. Like with a lot of the cinematics in the game, you can just leave the controller and just well, it, it it does feel like a movie. And at the time, I that really didn't excite me that much. But for some reason, I feel nostalgic for that kind of. Metal Gear drama saga of just uh, being engrossed with the story, even if it doesn't make that much sense. Although I I, I do know, or I did hear that Zero Saga makes much more sense than Metal Gear. But uh, I wish uh, I wish whoever owns it right now is thinking of an HD remake, just because it's really hard to play those games or even track them down. Yeah. So speaking of the cinematics, uh, this is many years ago, probably like 2009 or I did an article. Uh, it was like the top seven longest video game endings. And uh, I had a lot of rules for what constitutes ending and long because so many JRPGs would just, you know, they're all going to be vaguely this 20 minute range or 10 minute range. So I had a lot mm-hmm. of rules. But in the in the list, uh, number three longest one was Xenosaga 3. With the with the ending cutscene is about forty five minutes, not including the credits. Holy shit! So it's, it's just <laughs> like it's like, oh damn, man! Like I I like my endings to be uh, conclusive, and I do like that sense of when you spend a lot of time with these characters to really feel like it's wrapped up. But man, forty five minutes. Um, number one on that yeah, I mean, on that was though uh, Metal Gear Solid Four for basically an hour. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that, and, and I mean. Maybe when you hear an hour or 45 minutes, you don't think that much of it. But just remember that an anime episode is something like 20 minutes if you remove the the yeah. like the the songs at the beginning and the end. Yeah. And even an American show, like something like I don't know Breaking Bad, it's it's 50 minutes at at most uh, usually. So 45 minutes is really a lot. And usually when I'm, I mean, in this day and age, if you're watching a long episode like. Uh, American show, it's tough to fight the feeling of just really wanting to check Twitter for like a few seconds or just checking your email, something like that. So uh, an ending of a game that's probably not as well, I don't know, written or directed as as a massive American show is sure. really just, just 
different and tough, but yeah. I, I kind of miss that. Uh, it's been a long time since I played an RPG that is just telling me story for most of the time. Yeah. Even though I'm playing RPGs right now. Yeah, I feel like the last story I got really invested in with, was probably Mass Effect for 1, 2, and 3. And, and right now, like, it's yeah. not quite the same thing, but like I'm at like the 110-hour mark for Bloodborne, which is almost the exact opposite, which is not telling you the story directly, but is telling you probably like a 400-hour story through architecture and item placement. Uh, yeah, which is that's, just such that's, a great, that's, become, that's becoming my favorite. It's 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 my it's oh man, it's consumed most of my waking thoughts. Is uh, I mean, I yeah, got into Dark Souls a few years ago, but like finishing all those over and over again, and then Bloodborne is just this whole other level of like this is. I mean, this could be a whole topic for a show someday, but man, Bloodborne is like a validation of games as a storytelling medium, where games aren't just trying to be movies, but rather yeah. you can't do this in a movie, and you can't really write this in a book and get the same experience. You could do it better in a book, I think, but it wouldn't be the same thing as discovering these things as you move around an environment. Like that's unique to games. Yeah, uh, that's definitely a subject we'll have to like dedicate a whole episode yeah. to because that's uh, I, th- I think the first time I got that feeling is with Metroid Prime because uh, uh, yeah, especially in that era, like uh, developers love to uh, give you long cutscenes, and with Metroid Prime, you're really just uh, walking and discovering this uh, a, a lot a lot of abandoned areas, and I remember. Uh, when I first stepped into the ice world, the Fendrana drifts, and yeah. just uh, just going there, and and there's nothing of importance at the beginning, and you can see like the enemies, they they don't come near you, they don't harass you, they don't annoy you, and you're just walking and trying to understand how this um, place came to be, and of course you have the uh, scan visor, I think, where you uh, yeah. scan. Items, monsters, everything, and then you slowly piece the story together, and that just uh, made me think how you can truly make. Um, and uh, I think they call it environmental storytelling, where you're telling the story not through cutscenes, not through yeah. text, but just from letting the player slowly uh, drink uh, the game world and characters and, and enemies and all of that. And I love that. And of, of course, that, that that's that's with uh, Dark Souls, Demon Souls, uh, Bloodborne, which is really uh, probably my favorite um, uh, story experience with, with any game, period. Yeah, I have just been like devouring uh, like the Pale Blood Hunt document by Redgrave, DMC Redgrave, uh, and YouTube videos from him and uh, Aegon of Astora and uh, I forget uh, jerks like Jerk Sons Frontieras Jerks Without Borders, mm. um, really fun to follow. But that's a story for another day, I'm sure. Um, yes. But thanks for listening to this episode. Hopefully, uh, you found the discussion of uh, localization as interesting as we did. And uh, you can of course follow us on Twitter, Brave Wave Music. Uh, I'm Brelston on Twitter, and uh, of course, always head out check our store store.bravewave.net. For the outro song, um, I mentioned uh, in the interview with uh, 84Guys, uh, the Sorcery remix album, and it has a lot of really cool tracks by Mitsutu Suzuki, who made music for Final Fantasy XIII too, um, Bion, uh, who made the music for one of the Pixel Junk games. Uh, I think it was Pixel Junk Eden. He was also director on the game. And the track that we're going to 
review is uh, Mishiro Yamane's remix uh, yeah, called yeah. Unknowable Geometry. Uh, it's a Mishiro who, if, if you don't know her, she made the music for Castlevania Symphony of the Night, Castlevania Bloodlines, a lot of the later Castlevania games, and it's a really uh, cool uh, remix. And, and one thing I love about the album is that every artist is bringing his uh, signature style to the game. So Akira Yamaoka has this, you know, uh, signature rock, his guitar uh, right. sound. Yeah. Mishiru, like, even Mishiru's remix is called Symphony Mix, which is just yeah. uh, uh, amazing. So, hope you like it. Awesome. I can't wait to hear it. I All of those names are people that I follow, so I'm excited to hear this. Uh, but, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Wavelength. Mm-hmm.